0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, September 4th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh,
1: no, I'm happy to take questions.
0: Great. First question.
1: Hi, um, thanks uh, very much. Um, I guess I have an epidemiological question for you, and that is, I, I guess in your mind, like, what should the goal be right now for the U.S. in terms of um, controlling infections? Because I think, and I ask because like, at the beginning, I think everyone got on board with the idea of flattening the curve to um, sort of preserve hospital capacity, because everyone realized that would be really bad if health systems got overwhelmed. But now that that's like not the most imminent problem, I think people still look to hospital capacity to be like,
0: well, as long as we can take care of enough people, of everyone who might get sick,
1: that's why we can have things like college football or gyms open or things like that. And so I guess like what what should be the goal really? Like what should should be the metric we're
0: looking at and and like how would we get there?
1: Getting everyone back to work, I think, should be the goal Um, and back to school. So how we get there is um, uh, appears to be somewhat philosophically <laughs> philosophical, and and um, and but I don't think it actually is. Um, uh, we need to we need to get uh, ensure that outbreaks are not occurring, and we can tolerate small uh, small numbers of infections. We can't tolerate outbreaks, and we can't tolerate putting vulnerable people. Um, like nursing homes at risk. And so I think our goals should and and really should have been, a long time ago, protecting uh, the most vulnerable individuals first and foremost, and and having the right system set up to actually uh, detect and tackle viruses, uh, the outbreaks of this virus as they start to emerge. Uh, You know, is there an actual numerical value that is going to necessarily do that Uh, if if contact tracing is going to be our approach to uh, tackling outbreaks when they come about, then we have to keep outbreaks uh, in a in in a sufficiently small number that uh, that contact tracers can keep up. That number is very small, though, because it is these outbreaks can quickly get away uh, and get out of hand. Um, So I think uh, a different outcome is to just suppress the virus at the community level um, uh, through new means, and this is the this is essentially the idea of developing some sort of herd effects. The vaccine, uh, should it come about, um, the one of the major goals is not just to keep individuals who get vaccinated uh, uh, healthy, uh, but to stop uh, the overall transmission of the virus throughout the population as a whole through herd effects and, and that case being, that, that herd effect being herd immunity. Um, I think we can do very similar things through a major push for at-home testing. Uh, and I think that that's another way that we could daily frequent at-home testing, especially in hotspots, as a way to keep the virus under control, keep it at bay, and, um, and essentially suppress it at the community level so that we can continue to go about our, our day and make uh, make new exposures or new outbreaks so rare that we are not consistently concerned about who's sitting next to us at work or at dinner, or are there children going to school who are infected? We want to make that absolute risk extremely, extremely low so that we can actually get things back to normal. Um, so I don't think it's just about the hospitals. It's really, um, it's really about Ensuring that community spread does not persist when it starts to occur. Um, thanks very much.
0: Sure. Okay, great. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much, Dr. Mina. I just wanted to ask. So it looks like the seven-day average has been hovering in like this forty thousand something, you know, arena for a bit now. Um, which obviously is still really elevated from what we saw back in, say, May, when I think it was more in, like, the 20s. Can you talk about, like, that we're still seeing, you know, this elevated number of, of cases and looking at the average, you know, because it smooths out the anomalies. But can you talk about that? Like, are we still at a really bad place because of that metric? Or what are your thoughts?
1: Uh, we're definitely still at a very bad place. We're, <laughs> yes, uh, we still have almost a 1,000 people dying every day with COVID. Um, it's you know it's crazy what i i often like to think back about um you know where things were in as we as people were watching the outbreak emerge you know when you're seeing exponential growth uh it it you um on a daily basis it was very clear to everyone just how many cases were happening because from one day you have 800 cases and then a thousand and then you know, 1400, then you pass the 2000 mark. And we have, unfortunately, because we already went through the exponential growth, this plateauing seems to be sort of, um, uh, it, it seems to be, uh, it, it should be viewed the same way as if we were still seeing a major increase at that number. You know, the same way that we felt back in April or May, as cases were really, um, or April really, as cases were still, climbing, um, we should be feeling that sense of urgency to tackle this virus um, every single day right now. Uh, because if people weren't dying, if we didn't have a 1,000 people dying every day with this virus, I would maybe say something different. Um, but the point is, it is a virus that's killing people. It's a virus that's causing you know, what's much less discussed, but I think everyone knows about, is that there are uh, many longer-term consequences of some people who get severely infected but don't die. Uh, you know, that number might be an order of magnitude higher. So, you know, we should be dealing with this with a much greater sense of urgency than than we are, and, and plateauing at 40,000 identified cases a day, unless we're really trying to go for natural herd immunity, should not be our goal. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. And then, yeah, would you, do you expect going forward to us to kind of hold at this you know, 40 something thousand cases, right? You know, about 100,000 or about a thousand deaths a day or do you expect to improve or get worse? What are your, what's your outlook?
1: I expect it to get worse. Um, We, I I said it yesterday on CNN or something like that. Um, I was asked a question, you know, why do we have to, um, why do we really have to get cases completely under control before we go into the fall? And if we're not going into the fall with a huge running start in terms of having cases at very, very low levels, we still don't really have a good understanding of just how seasonal this virus is going to be. But we know that it, um, despite its closest neighbors being extremely seasonal to the, to the point where uh, the virus usually is at essentially undetectable levels, uh, in the summer months, we still have, we've seen it be able to break through all of that because the force of infection, the number of susceptibles is so high. But what we also see with those viruses is that come October, November, December, they they skyrocket. There's an exponential increase in these cases and uh, there is a clear seasonality of this virus. So, you know, I hope that that for some reason this virus um, behaves differently, but I don't anticipate that it will. Um, and so if we, if we go into this fall with 40,000 cases a day still affecting, infecting individuals, and that is again identified cases, uh, the actual number might be an order of magnitude higher. Uh, we run the risk of, um, of having uncontrollable outbreaks uh, once people really start, uh, once we get into this sort of seasonal effect that normally shows up. We're not completely sure what the seasonal what drives the seasonality. Is it purely behavioral as people um, move indoors again? I don't really think that's all because people are generally indoors a lot anyway. Um, it's probably something biological with sort of weather and, and um absolute humidity. You know, there's lots of different theories about what could be done and what, what could be driving it. the point is there's a very good likelihood if if history <laughs> of the other coronaviruses tells us anything that this virus will take off again. And we've actually seen it in the southern hemisphere as the, you know, they were doing pretty darn well when we were doing poorly, even countries that were pretty close to to, um, the origin of the virus. And then of course our summer hit and their winter and they have seen places like Australia have been hit pretty hard. Um, So that is uh, at least to some extent some evidence for uh, seasonality that we might expect.
0: Thank you so much. Next question.
2: Oh hi! Yeah, thanks for taking questions. Um, I wondered if if you could maybe help me fact check uh, uh, something we've been hearing from HHS for a while. And briefly, you know, the rolling averages of, of cases and deaths. Um, You know they're still very high, but they have continued to to decline. And HHS has repeatedly said, you know, this drop in numbers—it's real. It's not an artifact of decreased testing, even though testing has fallen off from its peak in July. And what they point to is the fact that, uh, you know, the percent positivity rate also um, has been dropping. It's getting near to five percent now. just from a strictly scientific point of view, is, is that right? Are they right that um, we wouldn't be seeing the percent positivity rate dropping if if the virus really was still um, spreading increasingly in, in different parts of the country?
1: Well, it really depends on how we are testing. And, and so it's a very, very difficult question um, to answer without being pretty specific. Um, Uh, If you have a program that is purely that's going out and you're just testing random, you're pulling people out of their cars and you're testing them or you're testing them on the sidewalk randomly, and you're starting to see this uh, frequency of cases of positive uh, uh, Samples um, go down. Then that is an indication that uh, that 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 those outbreaks are subsiding. Uh, If, however, you're changing your testing and your um, maybe not doing as much contact tracing, for example, not doing uh, not enriching uh, the sample set with um, with individuals that are more likely to be positive. um, Because you're not necessarily putting in the energy to find them. uh, Then that is, uh, then that's a different explanation for why the frequency of positives can decrease. So there's a whole slew of them. I think I do think that frequency is probably a better metric than overall. Like this whole epidemic, everyone's been staring at total numbers of cases, and in fact, we've we've calculated r not based on like these epidemiological parameters have all been based on sort of uh, total sheer, sheer number of cases, as though that you know that 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 is based on some assumption that you have comprehensive testing, which obviously we don't. So in that sense, frequency can kind of cut through some of that uh, frequency positives. Um, uh, relative to overall testing. And um, but I, I would say that it's pretty difficult for anyone without getting very specific about the individual sampling protocol to really be able to make that claim. Because there are such differences across the country about who's getting tested and why. In particular, in light of new controversial guidance surrounding do we test, um, do we contact trace all the asymptomatics and um and all of this, I, I would say that um, that is, or do we test all the asymptomatics? Um, If we stop doing that, then we are going to certainly decrease frequency of positives, um, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what's actually happening under the surface in terms of viral spread.
2: Great, thank you, and just one follow-up. There's some really uh, kind of tantalizing um, comments there. Has there been a shift? Are, Are you saying there has there been anything over the summer in a change in strategy and contact tracing that perhaps might explain uh, you know, these lower numbers and the decreasing positivity rate, you think?
1: Well, everyone is doing their, I would say that we, we don't have a national strategy, so it's extremely difficult to answer the question at a national level. Everyone's doing things differently. Um, individual states are rebelling against the federal government's guidance. Um, you know, that we are seeing this whole time, essentially of how the the activities that actually occur on the ground um, have generally been left up to the states and, and even the counties in some cases to decide how to deal with those. Um, so I would say that there are some areas where that reasoning is very sound and some areas where um, cases are truly dropping and some areas where cases are truly going up and we might not actually be doing the right amount of testing to actually to recognize it. So. Um, so I wouldn't be able to put a blanket statement on that, but I would say that, um, uh, the one takeaway there is I suppose we still, after all this time, we still have not figured out uh, any sort of national strategy for any piece of, of this puzzle. Okay, thank you. Next
0: question. Hi, uh, thank you, Domina.
2: Um I uh, would like to ask you if you could please clarify your statements about uh, PCR tests being too sensitive, uh, you know, and cycle threshold cutoffs being too high, and explain, you know, why that doesn't make PCR tests a good frontline tune and how rapid antigen tests would come into play in you know, that outbreaks are raging.
1: Thank you. I was actually just uh, before you asked the question. I was just going to take a moment to. Um, Interject and and, uh, and, ex- and and use this as an opportunity to clarify. Um, there was a, a a recent New York Times article uh, that I uh, that that suggested that um, the PCR testing that a lot of people I should say I want to say this very carefully and if anyone has questions for clarification please ask. Um, uh, it it said I think it was interpreted by many people to suggest that 90% of PCR positives or something along those lines are negative, are are not actually, um, are false positives. That is not what that was intended to say. Reading over the article, I see that. I can see that it um, probably was worded um, a a bit confusingly for anyone who didn't really understand what it's about. Um, What's actually happening here is that The the symmetry of how a viral infection occurs is very asymmetric. You have a really rapid ramp up of viral load. And then you have this really long tail of um, very, very low RNA copy counts that you can detect on PCR. And so all of these results, when we're so the statement really wasn't reflective of suggesting that these are false positives or even that testing is that that the way we're testing is unnecessary. If anything, it was very much saying the opposite. It was saying because we don't do enough frequent testing, we're actually missing people during the peak of their infection and we're capturing them too late. Um, And so if anything, it's saying we need to be testing more and more asymptomatic people more frequently as long as, you know, unless we have other ways to control the virus through social distancing or masks, which don't seem to be working in a lot of parts of this country, um, we can, a different approach is to test very frequently so that we're getting people at the beginning of their infection uh, and not later on. And so what that was getting at is this recognition. And unfortunately, we haven't published the the research yet, um, but we will probably have a preprint out in the next week or so. to describe sort of the intuition behind that article and behind what, um, what that was discussing. And, and what it, where it really comes from is that um, with an asymm- a, uh, with a asymmetric viral infection, you have this period of really high viral load, meaning low CT numbers, because the two are inverse on the PCR. And those will only be persisting for like, say, a week or so when people are most transmissible. And then some people will stay positive on the PCR potentially for weeks or months even. We just had a, um, we've had numerous individuals, I've had institutions and colleges get in touch with me recently saying, we've had individuals positive since July, what do we do with them? Uh, So some people can, and this is just because the virus essentially leaves residual RNA. It's kind of like a crime scene. We look for DNA at a crime scene because DNA persists on surfaces. and. And in blood spots and things like that for a long period of time, you could think of the, the trachea and the oropharynx and the nasopharynx as a crime scene. And the virus has left all of this RNA to be detected after the fact. And the PCR test can detect it in a very sensitive manner. And so that what it suggests is that a bulk of the time that somebody is PCR positive, they are actually post-infection, but it's not that they are, that they were, that they're true, that they're false positives. It's true that the test is working as it should. It's just that we caught them too late and we really should have had frequent. The only way to catch them early, because this is an asymptomatic infection a lot of times, is to do more frequent testing. Otherwise, just the, the probability if you're, if you're in a transmissible period where the virus is transmissible for a week, but you're in a post-transmissible period for five weeks, then one-sixth of the time, uh, then, then, then or I should say, five-sixths, for example, of the samples that you might collect during just routine asymptomatic surveillance will be people post, post-transmissibility. So it's really hard to, to use that to, you know, then we're quarantining those individuals after they've been infected already. And so one approach that I would say is for, And I want to clarify, this is for asymptomatic surveillance. This isn't for contact tracing for people at really high risk, for people who are symptomatic. Um, This is if you have very little information about a person's exposure history, and you don't know when they got infected, and you only know that they have a really, really low viral load, uh, there's a small chance that the viral load is on the way up. But that window of time is only a few hours, really, between kind of getting ha- having a very low viral load and getting to a pretty high one. So, but meanwhile, you're at a very low viral load after the fact for a very long time, for weeks or months. And so, the chances that you're actually detecting the people with very low viral loads here are pretty slim, just because the time window is so small. Um, but one way to deal with this, uh, I would say, is if you're doing PCR, one of the suggestions that I don't think came through properly in that. Um, in that article is not to change the threshold. That was a complete misunderstanding. Not to change the threshold for what is a positive, but to use the data that is, in, that is embedded in the PCR results to come up with um, different, um, different types of thresholds for actions. What do you do next after somebody gets a positive result? They're all positive. But how do you act on it? In one way, is if you get somebody who's very high viral load, well, then you know they're you. That, then it's a done deal. Isolate them, get them out of the population, and uh, contact trace their contacts uh, over the last few days. But if you have somebody with a very low viral load and you don't know anything else about when they might have gotten exposed or infected, uh, then there's a different way to do it. On the one hand, to make sure that they're not at this little piece going up you can bring them back or get them tested a second time the next day. If they're actually at the beginning of their infection, then they are going to go from, say, a CT value of 38 to maybe 28. So you'll see a a huge increase over a 24-hour period if you happen to catch them in this little window of time. But if they go from a CT value of 37 to a CT value the next day of 37 again, you have pretty good confidence, very good confidence, that probably that person is post-infectious. And maybe they don't need to be quarantined or isolated for, um, for 10 days because, they're at, because they've just shown you that, that their RNA is stable at an extremely low number. And we know that that indicates that somebody is likely on the post-infectious stage of just being RNA positive. The machine is just picking up random RNA molecules. So I, I, I want to make it, just again, I want to make it really clear that I was not suggesting these are false positives in any way, shape, or form. I am suggesting we need to do more frequent testing, because right now, if we're doing infrequent testing randomly, then say five, six of the time that we're actually detecting somebody through random asymptomatic testing, we're, we're getting them, uh, if they have a low viral load, they're going to be on the tail end of their infection. And we can use that information uh, to then decide, Okay, instead of telling them they have to isolate for 10 days, we can maybe get it, say, offer them a second test if they they can either choose to isolate for 10 days or they can get a second test the next day and the public health departments would have to figure out how to make that happen safely. Um, So I, I hope that that helps clarify some of the Really large misunderstandings that happen from that piece, um, but I'm willing to take any more questions that are around it.
2: Yeah, sorry. thanks for clarification. I have another question, which is unrelated. Um, some experts are skeptical of, of combining antigen tests that look at saliva because they say that you know saliva, saliva has lower levels of virus in it. Uh, which combined with the lower sensitivity of antigen test makes this approach um, not a good idea. So do you agree? And how would it be possible to increase the sensitivity of rapid antigen tests?
1: Yeah, so, so the rapid antigen test, so the, I didn't get to that with the other comment I was just making. The really unique thing about rapid antigen tests is that um, they, only, they largely only detect people during their window when they're, when they're likely to be transmitting virus. They won't, the antigens, unlike the RNA, the antigens don't hang about for weeks or months after somebody has been infectious. The antigens are only there. These are the proteins that kind of are like the spike protein and the nuclear capsid. They're the the arms and legs and eyes of the virus, if you will. So the actual features of the virus, the antigens um, will disappear uh, from the body. They'll get cleared by the immune system. Uh, And at the time when they're, once they're cleared, then people are generally no longer infectious with the virus, for the most part. And um, the concern about antigen tests is that they um, are are less sensitive than PCR to detect molecules. Um, And that's because PCR is, is extremely sensitive. It can detect one molecule, say. And that's why it stays positive for so long. The antigen test doesn't have an amplification step during it. Uh, it, it can be just something, I have one right here. This is, a, this is an antigen test, for example. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a piece of paper embedded with uh, monoclonal antibodies. And if I were to have coronavirus and spit on this, for example, or put it into a little plastic thing with my spit in it, it would pull up the fluid, and, and if there are viruses on it, it would cause a line to turn blue, for example. Um, there's no amplification step there, so you actually need quite a few viral particles in order to be able to detect. In order to make that line turn blue, and um, and so the good thing there's there's trade-offs. On the one hand, it's not going to be as sensitive, so if somebody's really early in their infection, it might miss them. But again, that's a really short window of time. Uh, if somebody's transmitting, though, if you're really at risk of transmitting to somebody else, you're going to have plenty of viral particles. Almost by definition, because you need those to transmit, um, and those would be those would certainly show up here. Um, and the saliva question, uh, I'd say that there's actually increasing data to suggest that saliva uh, is just as good as a nasopharyngeal swab, and could be better than a frontal nose anterior nerve swab. I think they're all for somebody who's transmitting virus, they're all very likely to turn positive, and that's an important thing. Almost all of the The conversations we've been having about sensitivity of the assay, sensitivity of the different collection techniques, has all been focused on really on whether or not we can catch the really low viral loads. I mean, it's the definition of what what defines sensitivity is, in some ways, the limit of detection if we're thinking about sensitivity to detect molecules. But if we're really interested in detecting people who are transmitting virus, We have a lot more flexibility there. We don't have to worry about detecting single molecules or the the subtle differences that happen between antigens um, being in the saliva versus the nasopharynx versus the anterior. Because if you have sufficient virus actually transmit to other people, you're probably going to have virus in each of those compartments in in high numbers. Um, But I would say saliva is probably going to continue becoming a more uh, used platform for collection, uh, along with anterior narrow swabbing, and eventually, outside of hospitals and medical clinics, I think, the nasopharyngeal swab will probably start taking a backseat.
0: Okay,
3: thank you. Uh, Next question. Hi, uh, thank you for doing uh, this call. Um, Sort of along the lines of some of the questions that have been asked about kind of where we are. Um, I'm wondering as we head into Labor Day with you know, how the testing capacity has kind of expanded to a certain degree or you know, at least different kinds of tests that are being ramped up, how should we apply uh, that in terms of a testing strategy kind of post Labor Day to not have the same spread we saw after Memorial Day and the 4th of July?
1: Uh, so sorry, how would we have um, a specific, are you asking what would a specific testing strategy look like?
3: Yeah, given that now compared to, say, after the 4th of July, we didn't quite have antigen tests at the same level, nor did we have the saliva test. And so kind of with the tools we have now, how we should apply those?
1: Yeah, well, the saliva test, just to be clear, isn't a test. Um, saliva is just another collection technique. I think there's been a lot of confusion about this. Um, saliva, anterior nasopharyngeal, um, they all are just collections. So for example, that, that um, saliva direct assay, that's not a that, that's not sort of a readily available test. It's another lab-based test that just uses saliva. Um, so I would say that, um, but the question is really about um, that we have increased capacity today. How can we best utilize it um, to stop outbreaks? Um, well, for, for one, we can really do it. Uh, we could set up ways to monitor for outbreaks that are um, better than what we're doing now. I would say at the moment, um, we are, we, we've had largely sort of haphazard approaches to surveillance. Um, we set up drive throughs and essentially if you're, if you have the, um, right information to figure out how to get to a drive through and you have a car to get there, um, then you can get tested. So that immediately really disenfranchises the already disenfranchised. You know, all of our testing strategies have been. Uh, there's been very few places, I think, that have really done a good job at ensuring um, equitable access to testing, and that's part of the reason why you know uh, the, the the communities that get hardest hit. not Not only do they not have, not only do, are they potentially more likely to have transmission go out of control there because they usually tend to be more um, um, physically um, clustered together in terms of the living environment and working environment, but they also generally have lower access to testing and to information and data, um, or even to masks and things along those lines. Um, so we can start by trying to ensure that we have plans in place, that we have actual plans. How do we do this? If you have a case, if you start to see an outbreak there, what exactly do you do? And you know, this is where we haven't seen any federal guidance, um, and a lot of it's been left up to counties to figure out. And a lot of counties in the United States don't have um, have never dealt with something like this. And I would say most departments of health in the United States have never dealt with an epidemic like this and, and across the world. So we need to create guidance for public health um, uh, individuals. And then also we can leverage, there's a, there's a large amount of testing and, um, and additional sort of infrastructure being built in the private sector. Businesses, every single day I get calls or emails from CEOs of major companies um, to talk about how to do contact tracing just within their own company, for example. And they don't know how to do it. But this is, you know, these these guidance um, documents, if they existed, and sometimes they do exist in small numbers, um, you know, they don't have to be, they don't have to live just within the public health domains. There's businesses want to make sure that their constituents are, and their employees are staying safe. And that they're not that outbreaks aren't starting within their, within their realms, and so they are taken upon themselves to start creating their own testing platforms, sometimes or contracting. So I think that if all all of this needs to be looked at as a comprehensive response, these need to be tracked. Who's actually doing testing? You know what companies are, what companies aren't, um, and then you know everything else has to flow from that type of coordination. Um, Rapid antigen tests are are a new test. They're not widely available. Uh, they will I'm hoping that they will be. I want the federal government to create a Manhattan project um, type approach to essentially just start making these simple lateral flow rapid antigen paper strip tests. This is something the federal government could do. Uh, they could actually take it upon themselves to make these tests they and it's something that unlike PCR labs, they would actually have control over they could. They could make millions and millions and millions of them daily uh, and distribute them in a coordinated fashion. Whereas when you're dealing with thousands of small PCR laboratories who are all doing their own sorts of uh, different different assays or hundreds of different labs around the country, it's very hard to corral that and and get cohesive um, uh, testing in a very regimented fashion. Um, But these paper strip tests, if the government wanted to produce them, they could have been producing them months ago uh, in, in huge numbers. They tend to just wait until a company like Abbott comes out and then they just buy up, um, all of Abbott's, uh, supply that they're going to make for the next three months or four months. So that's good, but it's not enough. That will maybe double the testing capacity in the country. Um, whereas if we really want to stop outbreaks from occurring, we need to scale these up much more if these are to actually be used as transmission blocking, um, devices, which I think they can be. Um, and so that's what I think we could be doing to prepare for the fall. We should have started it last month, we should have started it four months ago. Um, but there's no time better than today. If it hasn't been started yet, let's start it today. And, and that is, um, in, we, we, can, we can keep trying to, to ramp up laboratories but they're not, they're, you just can't scale them. We're not gonna have an exponential explosion in the number of laboratories. We could have an exponential explosion in the number of rapid antigen tests.
3: Yeah, one, one quick follow-up, kind of similar t- to that, I'm, I'm wondering, and, and obviously this is kind of in hindsight, so maybe it's not even really applicable given this, the state of our testing now, but were we, were we, the United States, best served by having testing aggregated kind of amongst a few top-heavy corporations um, like LabCorp and Quest, or did that kind of hinder our ability to adequately test the most people because it was kind of all getting funneled through like major players? I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. I had heard things that maybe if we didn't have so many kind of, I wouldn't say monopolized, but corporations doing most of the testing, maybe more people in more rural areas could have had access. And just curious on your thoughts of that theory.
1: Well, these these tests are not easy to set up is the problem. I actually think quite the opposite. Uh, in some ways, I don't want to. I want to be clear that I um, uh, w- when I say I think the opposite, I actually think had we had um, uh, I think for, for the next time that a pandemic like this comes around, if we have laboratory efficient public health labs could have gone a really long way. If every single state had very efficient public health labs with the expertise and capacity to quickly spin up uh, uh, PCR-based testing and at scale, then we could have had 50 labs across the country. Maybe states like New York and California would have four different sort of big labs, Um, that would have been a way to really use the economy of scale. Instead, what we saw, what really slowed everything down was every single little lab around the country, especially because of the EUA process, had to reinvent the wheel. The EUA uh, meant well, but it was one of the greatest hindrances to getting testing going quickly. At our hospital, we had testing available for patients in February and we were not allowed to use it because there, there was that EUA process in place. So we had to essentially reinvent the wheel despite our, already, our expertise that we had sort of implicit in the lab already and, uh, and submit applications and go through all this stuff and, and it slowed everything down. And by having all of this spaced out, there is sometimes, uh, there is a really good use of distributed testing, but that's when the complexity is so low that, the, that getting the lab set up isn't the barrier so something like this paper strip test this can be distributed this is how you do distributed testing but if you have a high complexity assay which in general all of the PCR tests are very high complexity uh, then then having every single small lab have to go through the trouble of buying robots and figuring out just how to do PCR most of these labs have never done manual PCR before um, that's that was actually a problem so I think Uh, The problem isn't that there were mega labs that are corporate, trying to do the testing. The problem is that we didn't have mega labs that are part of a public health network that run by the federal and state governments uh, to be prepared for this type of thing. And in the future, I would say, on the contrary, we want want large labs that can bank on economy of scale, that already have pre-existing contracts with manufacturers, that we have plans put in place for... um, in an emergency how the robotic tips are going to be produced, how the swabs are going to be produced. You know, we didn't have a single plan, despite knowing that this was a very likely outcome uh, in the future. And I I still don't think we have a plan for the next time. Uh, Not that we have to be doing in the midst of this, but who knows, you know, a new pandemic could start tomorrow uh, for a new virus. Um, And uh, and I, I would say that we don't have a plan for how to really do all of this. And I don't think that I've seen any real significant discussion at all in at the federal level to say, hey, we actually should be creating federal laboratories. And that's a big mistake. And that's, I think, one of the reasons the US has lagged so far behind in our ability to tackle
3: this virus.
0: OK, great. Thank you. Uh, next question.
3: Hi. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, we were just wondering. We saw that Roche got an EUA for a PCR combined um, influenza coronavirus test. And I mean, it's obviously still a PCR test, but we were wondering if you think these have any utility. Because um, I know that oftentimes doctors don't even test for the flu. It's more of a clinical suspicion. But um, just your overall thoughts on these tests and, and how you see them being used.
1: Yeah, I think they have a lot of clinical utility, only because there there are a lot of overlaps with the um, With the symptoms, and so everyone uh, is going to be concerned that that uh, every physician or hospital or clinic or school is going to be concerned that anyone who comes in with any signs of um, coronavirus will need to be quarantined and and um, are isolated or or quarantined, and so um so what this is doing is it's going to allow a more rapid assessment not just if you're negative for covid but if you find that somebody's positive for flu you'll you'll be able to start parsing these apart so the symptoms overlap we're entering into a phase of the year where um it's very likely that the the two viruses will overlap so i think that this just makes sense it's a way to conserve resources like roche for example and Hologic, they're literally running out of medical grade plastics you know and so um so we need to figure out how to um, either offload a lot of the testing from the clinical laboratories or figure out how to make everything more efficient and this is one way to make things more efficient
0: do you have a follow-up
3: yeah just just a quick thing um have you heard of anybody working on a paper strip influenza coronavirus dual antigen test uh um,
1: not so much the paper strip, but other rapid tests. Yes, um, some CRISPR-based tests. This has been discussed a lot. I think that um, I think that the paper strip test should be doing that, um, and I anticipate that eventually they will. But just getting the first ones out the door for a single pathogen is uh, is a good start, anyway. But um, but they should, and and there are f- rapid flu tests, for example, that have existed for quite a while.
4: Great,
3: thank you.
0: Next question.
4: Hi, thanks uh, as always for doing this. Um, while we're on the topic of flu uh, and COVID, I'm curious you know, if you can just give us a, a kind of a big picture of what's on your mind um, as we enter into flu season. Like, what are your kind of top level concerns about, about where we are at this point with, with COVID or flu? I mean, what's, what, what kind of keeps you up at night at, at this point um, you know, with, with those two diseases interacting? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: well, I think the biggest thing, uh, on the one hand, I actually, I hope um, that uh, all of these um, effects that we are, or all of these non-pharmaceutical interventions that we're, that we're putting in place for COVID, like masks and social distancing in a lot of parts of the country, um, will help to really abrogate uh, the, the size and, and scope of uh, influenza this year. That could potentially have a detrimental effect next year um uh if we if if we end up having people not sort of boost their antibodies boost their immunity from flu this year we could see a greater um outbreak next year so that's one sort of um I, I, somewhat theoretical um adverse effect that could occur um and uh but i i think that um we need to get our economy back on track, and uh, if if we have a bad flu season that doesn't get um, mitigated pretty strongly by all the interventions we're putting in place, then it will just it will lead to major concerns. Um, uh, is this COVID? Is it flu? It will lead to confusion, um, and, and I, I think that uh, my my biggest concern is really about it continuing to delay our ability to efficiently get people back to work and. Um, and back into schools uh, and everything else. And so I, I, I am most concerned about, about that aspect of, um, of it just muddying the waters and, and making everything even more difficult. It's already been sufficiently difficult.
4: I guess the other thing I was wondering about is uh, as we're going into Labor Day, um, you know, there's been a a fair amount of reporting on the the risks that we're going to see a spike and uh, certainly have seen what appears to be more of these kinds of events. You know, we're hearing about college parties, we've got these TikTok stars in Los Angeles that got their power cut off, got this wedding in Maine, we've got the Sturgis motorcycle rally, we've got the president's speech on the White House lawn. I'm curious, like, where you think, you know, we are at this point with, you know, people kind of getting the message that this is a good idea to take up these measures. Um, And, you know, do you expect to see, uh you know the, the the numbers have been kind of flat to declining recently, and I'm wondering if you're kind of on the lookout for another rise after labor day
1: um yeah, I think that what we're seeing is complacency and we're seeing not and and i i i i I understand why people are becoming complacent everyone's tired um. Everyone is really worn down by this virus. I've been sitting in this damn chair since March, you know. And um, so I I think everyone is frustrated. Everyone just wants to get their life back. They want to see their parents. They want to see their kids. Um, They want to get back to school. And so uh, this is why it was just so important I mean, it's it's not really worth talking about anymore because it can't change the past, but it's why it would have been just so important for us to do it right the first time, to not let this drag out in the way that we have because eventually we're going to see what is happening now, which is complacency, parties, getting things back together, uh, getting people back together. And you know what? Unfortunately, what's going to happen is we're going to see all of this happening at the social level. And then the companies are going to still... For various reasons, they're going to still remain closed, and so you're still going to have populations getting together and spreading disease. And then the restaurants are going to continue going out of business. Um, people are going to continue being out of work. They're going to continue getting evicted from their homes. And so I think that there's a clear reason why we're starting to see people engage more and more. Um, and it's it's uh, it, it's an, some of it's complacency, some of it's outright sort of outrage uh, or rage against the 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 uh, any sense of uh, coordinated response. Some of it's making political statements, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different reasons why people are doing it. But I think overall, the fear factor is gone. And that's, you know, that's okay. But, um, but it doesn't need to be fear that drives people, it should be common, common desire to get things um, to get people to keep people healthy, um, that really drives people to to make these decisions. And um, I think that there was no there was no real way around this, um, you know short of enacting martial law or something we were always going to see people start to move back and get try to try to create some sense of normalcy in their life again. Um, I just wish we had been able to get the virus under control beforehand before people got to this point where they just don 't care anymore um, and i i I'm not a psychologist. Um, I don't know how to understand human behavior in this way. It's not my area of expertise. But uh, I'm saddened to see what's happening. But I would be um, lying if I said I didn't understand why people are making these decisions.
4: Yeah. Great. Thank you.
0: Next question.
5: Hey, Michael. Um, on the uh, if, if the issue of whether uh, some of us want to know whether we've been exposed or not, um, what what are the tests that Detect antibodies, and how long do the antibodies persist at levels that are detectable by those tests?
1: I I don't understand. I thought you were going to ask me what's going to happen with this pandemic in 2025.
5: <laughs> yeah, you got you got hit with that question uh, a couple of times already. So uh, no need to. <laughs> um,
1: I'm just joking. Um, uh, so uh, fair the, enough. <laughs> the antibody tests. Um, uh, they, are, uh, they are good tests. Um, what we're seeing is, again, I've said this in the past, and I, I'll reiterate it again, the, the waning of antibodies during a primary response like people are having, primary means first time that somebody's getting an infection with a given virus. Uh, waning antibodies is a normal and anticipated effect. And so um, these antibody tests, we saw a whole slew of antibody tests early on that just didn't work. They were pieces of plastic, and they were frankly pieces of garbage. Uh, the FDA, in a, in a rash decision, decided to approve a lot of them, even approve them for diagnostics to, for acute infection. That, I think, was all really bad decision-making. Uh, they, that has been, in some ways, ameliorated. They've pulled a lot of this off the market again. Um, it, of course, did like swing the pendulum to make them even more cautious about point-of-care rapid antigen tests and things like that. But the antibody tests that exist now some of them are made by Roche and Abbott, DiaSorin. these companies. They actually do a very good job. Um, but there's never been more scrutiny on antibody tests than there have been during this uh, outbreak. And so what we're seeing are the known limitations of antibodies. Um, people develop antibodies at different times uh, after infection. So you can't just say this is, you know, everyone's going to be positive for an antibody 10 days after infection. It might be that. 99 percent of people are positive after 20 days after infection. We don't really have great information on what are the true rates of people who are asymptomatically infected uh, and what are their sort of production of antibodies and how long do those antibodies last. Nor do we have really great information on what exactly they'll mean for immunity, but I think we're going to continue getting there. Uh, These are usually studies that take years and there's been so much intense interest that I think we'll start to see uh, the utility of these to understand the immune protection associated with these uh, uh, of, and with, associated with antibodies that we can measure. and so the current state is that antibodies can be can be measured very well. Uh, I think because of waning antibody levels, which doesn't necessarily mean the waning immunity, just antibody levels are waning um, they might be uh, after a big outbreak, they might become less and less useful for to understand sort of what happened in a community five months ago, but they'll be very good to know what happened in a community a month ago, or two months or three months ago. So they they can be very powerful public health tools. We should be, we should absolutely be putting huge resources right now into setting up whole networks of antibody measurement systems to do not just coronavirus, but to be measuring all types of viruses, uh, antibodies against all types of viruses, because of just how powerful a surveillance Tool, it isn't a public health tool. We've been trying to develop, for example, what we call an immune observatory, a global network of, of laboratories able to uh, all work together to let us know where different viruses are at any given time based on people's immune responses. So the assays, the tests can work very well. We just were, unfortunately, stuck in the beginning with a bunch of tests that didn't work.
5: OK, just a quick follow up. So the QDEL test, is that now just toast? Is that because of the Abbott test, is it it no longer ever going to be used? Or is there still a role for that QDEL test?
1: Oh, so those are the antigen tests. Yeah, yeah, of course, right. And that's looking for the virus. So that will probably, that will still be used. I don't think it's toast. It's, um, there's the Abbott Binex now, there's the Abbott ID now, there's the Quidel, and there's the BD Veritor. Those are the rapid ones that are on the market at the moment uh the major ones and um i wouldn't say that any they're all they're all needed they're they are all decent um they all have their be- benefits and their limitations um but when used in a coordinated way i think they they will all stick around
5: okay and just going back to the antibodies just real quick i know i'm abusing the rules here but um So if it's eight months have gone by, is there a test out there that can pick up the antibodies, or is that just too long a time to detect that you've been exposed? Just not for surveillance, but just in case we thought maybe that might give us immunity. And I know that you dispute that, but just in case that was the motive.
1: Yeah, so the antibodies, it will be very individual dependent. We see some people will keep antibodies for a very long time after a primary infection, and some people, will their antibodies will wane quickly. Um, In in my lab, some of the things we work on are developing very, very high resolution antibody detection systems, really sensitive. They can detect for a given pathogen, um, not just a a single value, but maybe a hundred different antibodies for a given pathogen, for example. So we're trying to see, um, can we do a better job with these types of more um, uh, futuristic, if you will, or next generation type of antibody tests, can we actually get a better ability to detect um, antibodies much longer out to know if we can, uh, if we can sort of take somebody's blood uh, a year later and understand if they actually um, had the infection. For a lot of viruses, we, we can, uh, and and I anticipate that after people get multiple exposures to this virus, they'll probably, or to the vaccine, they'll probably build up a longer term immunological memory.
5: Okay. Thanks. Thanks for allowing me through questions.
1: I, um, I was
0: going to say, Dr. Min, it's one o'clock.
1: Yeah, sometimes I can stand, but I, I apologize for those who have been on and with your hands raised. Um, if you want to send emails, I can try to get to
3: them uh, today, but I do have to run.
0: This concludes the September 4th press conference.